Good morning. It's my privilege to uh, read the scripture this morning. It's in James 1, 1 through 12. James is servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Count it all joy, my brothers, and when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Most glorious and gracious Heavenly Father God, we come before you this morning and we recognize that there is something special when your word and your spirit and your people come together in one place. God, may we never take for granted the precious and glorious grace you have shown us by not leaving us alone and not remaining silent, but giving us your word so that we might know you, we might know who we are to be, and that we might know what we are to believe. God, I pray, as I have prayed so many times before, that what we do not know, you would teach us. What we do not have, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us for your glory, through the power of your Spirit, in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. As we begin this morning, I, I, I'd like to, by way, normally, you know, I begin a sermon with uh, a story or an illustration. I don't have the time or ability to do that this morning because we are beginning a new series in the book of James. As we begin the book of James, I would like to say, as I said or alluded to a moment ago, that James, if you will, is kind of like a boxer who uh, there are some boxers that dance around the ring and take a swing every now and then and hit you and then move and stick and jab and move and all those other things. Um, James is not like that. James is like the Mike Tyson of the New Testament. James wants to stand toe-to-toe with you and just punch you in the mouth. And that's what he does. James is introduced to us in verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. 
James. Who is James? By way of introduction to this book and really to the series, I think it's important that we know both who James is and who he's writing to, and he lets us know this from the very beginning. Without going into all the detail, and if you'd like to know more, I can give you plenty more, but the overwhelming evidence, both in history and textually, points to this James being James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He was the leader of the church of Jerusalem. He was the the lead elder, the, the bishop, if you will, of the church in Jerusalem. If he's that, and I believe he is, um, then, then why does he not begin the letter with James, the half-brother of Jesus, or James, the younger brother of Jesus? And instead he begins it with James, in literal translation, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he refer to himself as a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ and not the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ? And I think the easiest explanation, especially as we look throughout the book of James, we'll find that James realized that the most important relationship he had with Jesus was not biological. The most important relationship he had with Jesus Christ was his spiritual relationship with Jesus. Furthermore, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, we find out something very interesting. Really, 1, 18 through 20, the Apostle Paul says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. So the Apostle Paul refers to James, the Lord's brother, as an apostle. He refers to him as an apostle, most likely. Uh, If you know, the definition of an apostle is one who was specifically called out verbally by Jesus Christ to follow and to serve him. And so you say, well, how come he can call him an apostle? Well, Paul gives us another indication as to why. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15... Uh, It's the passage you've no doubt heard me quote before uh, with the four that's of the gospel. Uh, I delivered to you uh, of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised again according to the scriptures and that he was seen. And then he begins to list who he was seen by. And he says he was seen by no less than 500. Uh, He was seen by the other apostles. But he says this, then, in verses 7 and 8, then he appeared to James... Then to all the apostles, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me, the Apostle Paul. So Paul refers to this and specifically lets us know that Jesus appeared to his brother, James, who did not originally believe in Jesus. We know that from the Gospels, that uh, they showed up and and basically told people, tried to tell everybody he was crazy, tried to pull him back home, didn't want anyone to listen to him. And so we've got this massive shift, and we shift so much that in Acts chapter 15, uh, there is something referred to as the Jerusalem Council. And in Acts 15, uh, whenever Gentiles, Samaritans and full Gentiles have come to faith in Christ, um, there, there is some question as to whether they can and what the rules need to be in regard to that. And all of that, they're concerned because up to that point, only Jewish 
people had become believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And so uh, they were concerned about that, weren't sure what to do. And the Jerusalem council brought together some heavy hitters, including the apostle Peter, who let them know what they were supposed to do, what they were supposed to believe. But there was someone presiding over the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. It was the bishop, the leader of the church at Jerusalem, which at that time was the church. The, the leader of the church in Jerusalem was none other than James, the brother of Jesus. So if that's the case, and I believe it is, that is his authority. He is declared by the apostle Paul as an apostle. He is the brother of Jesus, but more than anything, he was called out by Jesus and he became the leader and prominent one. In fact, he is referred to by the Apostle Paul again as a pillar of the church. But who is he writing to? It says, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion greetings. Now we hear that and it automatically says, okay, so was James just writing to a bunch of... Uh, was he writing to Jews? Does that not apply to us today? Well, when he refers to them as the dispersion, or your translation may say the diaspora, but the, the, those who have been dispersed, those who have been scattered. If you remember in Acts chapter 7, uh, the, uh, the man Stephen was martyred for his faith. And the scripture says that the moment he was martyred for his faith, that heavy persecution came against all those who followed the way, who followed Jesus Christ. And because of that, it scattered all the Jewish believers to the four winds of the earth. Why? Well, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost. And when we find them in Acts chapter 7, where are they witnesses? They are in Jerusalem. They haven't left. They haven't gone anywhere. Uh, at, the, at the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached, we're told that they were Jews from all over the known world. And yet, when we find them in Acts 6 and 7, they're still there. They haven't left. And so, this persecution comes against Stephen, and the church disperses. Uh, there are estimates that there were several hundred thousand believers at that time. They dispersed everywhere. So, when James writes to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, he is writing to the Jewish believers who were in his church before they were scattered after the persecution of Stephen, or the martyrdom of Stephen and the subsequent persecution. So all of that to say that the, the book of James, the, the letter of James is written to believers who were scattered, believers who were all over the known world, believers who were in need of protection, uh, or, or rather uh, encouragement. They were in need of uh, bolstering because of their faith because they had experienced significant persecution. Now, it's also important to note that when we look at the book of James, it's, this actually squelches a lot of confusion because there is some confusion surrounding the book of James, which we will talk about when we get there. But I will say this, that the book of James is not a book, it's not necessarily a book about how to believe in Jesus Christ, it is rather a book on how to live as a Christian once you are a believer in Jesus Christ. For many of us, knowledge isn't the issue. Knowing what we're supposed to believe, while it is extremely important, knowing what we're supposed to believe is not enough. What we know should change who we are and how we live. That's the message of the book of James in a nutshell. What we know should change who we are and how we live. There are 108 verses in the book of James. 
And the pressing nature of this whole book is not what does it mean to believe, but rather how should we now live if we have genuine faith. Through the book of James, I believe the Lord has a particular message for Eastwood Baptist Church. And that if we will be, as he says later, not just hearers of the word, but doers also, it will clearly and irrevocably change us as a church family. It should be the case throughout the word of God, truthfully, but the practical nature of James means we will all, hear me, we will all be pressed, we will all be moved, we will all be stretched to be conformed to the image of God. Of Jesus Christ. So how do you live out your faith? Does the life you live clearly showcase your faith to the world around you? Do the actions of Eastwood Baptist Church manifest the faith we espouse? Does the life you lead match the faith you claim? Do you ever struggle to understand how to put your faith into action? If you need answers to these questions, then what you can know is that the book of James will give them. If you will not simply hear, but do. And one of the most difficult and even painful issues uh, that we have that proves or betrays genuine faith in our lives is how we handle difficulties and trials. Most of us spend our entire lives trying to do everything we can to avoid trials. And yet... We all experience them. We all have stories. But this morning, we will see. We can't escape trials. We can't escape trials, but we can thrive in and through them. We can't escape them, but we can thrive in and through them. If I were to ask right now, you don't have to. But if I were to ask right now, for a show of hands, for those who are struggling with different things, there would be a myriad of stories about financial issues or issues with children or issues with extended family or issues with, uh, within your marriage or health problems or mistreatment or persecution or pain in general. And while they may be common, how we deal with them is really the concern James has. If you're going to thrive through trials, then the first thing you have to have is you've got to have the right perspective. You've got to have the right perspective. Now, if you noticed, I already um, did verse 1, so I'm jumping right into verse 2. But in verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." So James just jumps right into it. Count it all joy. Consider it all joy. Deem it all joy. It doesn't say it is joy. It doesn't say it is fun. Uh, James is not calling for us to be Christian masochists who say we just enjoy pain. He's saying it hurts. It's hard. But I don't, it's not joyful. It's not fun. But I want you to count it as joy. Deem it as joy. Consider it joy, but not just any kind of joy. The literal translation from the Greek is count it all joy or count it pure joy. Pure joy. Count it pure joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. 
This is suffering of any kind. And, and I love the fact that he mentions it this way because he repeatedly um, it talks about poverty. He talks about mistreatment uh, because of religious persecution. He talks about all those things in the book of James. Um, chapter 2, 1 through 7, chapter 2, 15 through 17, chapter 4, 13 through 5, 11, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he talks about it everywhere, and yet here he just says trials of various kinds. The reason is because when you and I read this book, if we say, well, I'm not being persecuted religiously, or I don't consider myself poor, so I don't know that that necessarily applies to me, he says trials of various kinds. That means every type. Any, any kind. And I can tell you this, like the old preacher said, if you say, well, I'm not going through a trial right now, you're either going into one, you're in one, or you're coming out of one. That's really the only way that we live life. And if that's the case, he says, count it all joy. We, we hear that, and it sounds crazy to say that in the midst of our difficulty, in the midst of our hardship and our trials, we're supposed to consider it pure joy. But he tells us why. In verse 3, for or because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. For you know. I love this. This means that it was common teaching in the early church that trials were the way that God grows his people. So James is telling them, hey, you need to consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials of, of many kinds because you know, you know. See, many of us have forgotten. Many of us uh, have, we listen to preachers online or, or on YouTube or things like that who tend to cherry pick verses throughout the deal to make us believe and think that the Christian life is supposed to be nothing but butterflies, fluffy clouds and rainbows. But the truth is, is that it hurts. It's hard. So well, it's not hard for me. Then you're not doing it right. Because Jesus said, you will have persecution in this world. The Apostle Paul told Timothy that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the simple answer is not whether you will go through difficulties and hardship, but how you will live in the midst of it. And James says the first thing you have to do is have the right perspective. Consider it joy. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness the testing of your faith faith this word for testing is the word they use for when they purify gold or silver it means to heat up to white hot and to to take out the impurities this is not just any kind of struggle this isn't just a simple misunderstanding this is deep and painful and he says that it steadfastness is literally perseverance it produces perseverance in verse three staying power staying power you know, um, whenever I was growing up and, and running long distance, one of the days that I hated the most was Monday. I hated Monday because it, it, Monday is the furthest from the race. Monday, or Saturday morning was usually the race, and so Monday would be the hardest workout of the week. Monday afternoon, the easy run in the morning, Monday afternoon was almost always the same thing. We would go to a place called Lenny Creek, it, had, um, it was exactly 1,600 meters from the front of Lenny Creek to the back where the road dead, end, dead ended. And we would literally run from the front to the back, rest for five minutes, run from the back to the front, rest for five minutes, front to back, 
over and over again. We called them mile repeats. It was awful. We ran six of them, and we had to run them all out with every single thing we had. And I remember thinking the entire time, all of us talking, trying to talk uh, while we're running, and, and just talking about how much we could not stand Coach Bagwell. <laughs> Truthfully, I love Coach Bagwell, but the entire time, all we were like, oh, oh. <laughs> stupid, I hate this. Gosh, and, and it was painful, and you're, you're, every muscle in your body screaming. But then if you were to ask, why do we do that? The answer would be, because when it's race day, I want you to be able to stand firm. I want you to be able to withstand. I want you to have stamina and have the ability to run fast for long periods of time. He says that the testing of your faith produces staying power. Staying power. Stamina. Steadfastness. And verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect. So then you got to stand firm. You have to stand fast that you may be perfect. Your translation may say mature, complete, and lacking in nothing. This is maturity, Christian maturity. Now you have notes there if you have those notes and you're taking notes or you have something or you want to write it in your Bible. Now these are the two things that I think come out of this section right here. What we have to remember, this is the right perspective, what we have to remember is that suffering has the purpose of strengthening you. That's the purpose. Suffering has the purpose of strengthening you, and suffering has the goal of maturing you. So you want to know how to become a mature Christian? You're not going to like the answer. The way you become a mature Christian is by suffering with the right perspective. There are many ways that humans may respond to trial and difficulty, but they all boil down to this. The perspective of the world... Because of this perspective of the world, the world says there is no rhyme or reason to suffering and struggle. And because of that, it's just painful and it's worthless. And it causes people to say, if they believe in a God, it causes people to say, or when Christians who don't understand having the right perspective, when they suffer, it causes us to say, why God? This isn't fair, God. This doesn't make sense, God. This is purposeless. However, we can see from James here that the right perspective, the Christian should see pain and suffering as having the goal or the purpose of strengthening and maturing us. So what is, what's the point here? Well, he keeps building his argument. Because the next thing where James shows us is that if you're going to thrive through trials, then you've got to turn to the right source. You don't only have to have the right perspective, but you've got to turn... To the right source. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom. Now I'll go ahead and throw this out there. If you have a New American Standard Bible. It says something a little different. All the other modern translations really don't. Even the ESV. Which I love. But the New American Standard is the only one really that translates this. It literally translates it. But. If any of you lacks wisdom. Why? Because this is not a verse, hear me, this is not a verse, while it is true, this is not a verse to say, I'm struggling with what I should do in my job, I'm struggling with what school I should go to, hey, but you know, the Bible says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. While that is true, you should certainly go to God for guidance and everything. That's not actually what this verse means. This verse is connected 
This, uh, this verse is connected with the word, but to let us know that he's saying you need to consider it joy, brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials and difficulties, um, for you know that the testing of your faith, it produces steadfastness, and when steadfastness has had its full effect, it, you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom... See, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. James is very concerned with wisdom. He talks about it throughout his book, and we won't go into that. But in, in this book, what we have to understand is there is a difference between knowledge and wisdom. See, knowledge is simply facts. The facts about God or the facts about whatever. Um, it, the, it's just simply information. Wisdom is the ability to take that information and live it out on a daily basis. Right? So, um, Jesus is Lord. That's information. But when I am balancing my checkbook and determining how much I'm going to tithe or how much I'm going to give to the church, at that moment, if I take the information of Jesus as Lord, that knowledge, and I apply it and make it wisdom, then I say, well, because Jesus is Lord, the question is not how much should I give to the church and God's work. It's how much do I get to keep. See, it's about a change in perspective and wisdom is the ability to take what we know and live it out practically. So he says, but, but if you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Would you lack wisdom? How? If you lack the wisdom to be able to know how to see trials and difficulties as the way that God matures and grows you. If you say, well, I don't know how to do that. Exactly. So ask God. That's what James says. You don't know how to do it, ask God. He'll show you. He'll show you how to have the right perspective. And, and how will he do it? It says he'll give generously to all without reproach. By the way, I love that. I love that phrase. That when I ask God for wisdom on how to deal with the issues in life and God is going to do it, he gives generously and without reproach. He does not, when I go to him and say, Heavenly Father, he doesn't roll his eyes and go, oh, again. It says he gives generously and he does it without reproach. Get away from the lie of the enemy. Get away from whatever your brain may be telling you that when you go to God, he is somehow annoyed and you're coming to him as like, Lord, if you get a chance. He is a loving father who is standing there ready to give generously and he will never hold it against you when you ask him for something. So he says he'll give generously and without reproach. But, here's the key, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. But ask in faith with no doubting. This is an attitude. This is the way you approach God. Now, you're going to ask in faith with no doubting. No doubting of what? Because he doesn't say that. He doesn't really tell us. And because he doesn't really tell us, the only thing we have to go off is what he just said. That's the way hermeneutics works. So since we don't know, he doesn't give us a direct statement, like have faith and don't doubt that he'll do it or whatever else, then we have to go with what he just said. So what did he just say? He says that he will give liberally or generously and without reproach. So when you go to him, you don't doubt that he will give generously and without reproach. Instead, you go to him in faith believing that he will give generously and without reproach. 
Why? So look what he says. Because that person, the one who doubts, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind, always changing, never consistent, responding differently each time. That's what it means. They're volatile and lacking any steadfastness, which is what we need, right? They, they, notice that, that what we're, our goal is to be steadfast. But he says this person is like a wave. They're not steadfast. They're bouncing around all over, driven and tossed by the wind. This is the kind of person who wants wisdom from God one day and wisdom from the world the next. It's like St. Augustine before he was a believer, his prayer to God. God, make me holy, just not today. See, we go to God, many times we want him to give us wisdom Uh, Or we say we want him to give us wisdom. We'll go to God and say, God, give me wisdom on how to deal with this. And then God lays it on you. He gives you the wisdom and how to deal with this. And you go, wait, I don't like that. I'm going to do it my way. But then the next time you want God's advice or you want God's direction. This person is what they're just double-minded. What does he say? He says they're they're double-minded and unstable as opposed to steadfast. So we have to have the right perspective, but we got to turn to the right source. What's the source of wisdom? What's the source of guidance? Believer, it is not the world. It is not a self-help book. It is not a preacher who just wants to tell you that everything's going to be okay and there's nothing wrong in this life and you're perfectly fine just the way you are. The source of wisdom is the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. You want to know how to live life? Quit turning on the TV and open your Bible. You want to know how to live your life? Quit turning on Facebook or Instagram or any of the other social media websites. Quit watching TikTok videos and instead open the Word of God and read what God says to you. You say, well, I just don't know what God's doing. Are you reading the Bible? I don't know God's will for my... He's already given you His Word. He's given me His Word. So many of us lack direction and wisdom in life, not because we don't know, but because we don't go to the place it's found. See, you don't only have to have the right perspective. You've got to turn to the right source. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. The ability to uh, persevere and even thrive in and through trials is not inherent to human beings. It's not inherent. It's not natural to us. It doesn't come naturally. It comes from God. And the ability to do so comes from God. This is also, as a side note, this is why simple platitudes do not help whenever someone is going through deep suffering and pain. This is why going to someone when they've lost a child or lost a spouse or lost a loved one and standing next to them and saying something like, well, you know, God has a plan. Okay, that's knowledge. In that moment, all they want is wisdom. What they need is wisdom. That's nice. What's the issue? They know that. If they're a believer in Jesus Christ, they know God has a plan. They know God is in control. Right now, their heart is screaming from inside of them. And their soul is wrenched to the point of death. And all they need to know is how am I going to take the next breath and how am I going to wake up tomorrow morning? And because of that, the answer you give them is not simple platitudes and knowledge. What you need to do is pray for them that God would grant them wisdom on how to work through this. And then just be there with them as a side note. They don't really care how much you know. They just want to know you're there. 
See, if you and I are going to ask this, though, we have to ask without doubting. We have to ask in faith. We can't just be driven and tossed. You can't go to God in one minute and then go to the world the next minute. You can't go to God and then decide whether you want to take what He guides and how you're supposed to live. You don't get to go to God and say, how am I supposed to be in this relationship? And then when He tells you what you don't want to hear, you do what you wanted to do anyway. You go to God. You ask in faith. He'll give you wisdom. And He'll give you... I mean, you ask in faith. He will give you wisdom. He will give you guidance. He will show you how you are to live in light of the word of God and in light of the faith that you espouse. So not only are you to have the right perspective and not only are you to turn to the right source, but if you're going to thrive through trials, then you've got to maintain the right focus. You've got to maintain the right focus. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, again... The ESV does not translate a word at the beginning. It doesn't translate a word that can be translated and, now, or but, and it most nearly is, should be translated but. So he is continuing his conversation. He's continuing his conversation where he talks about, uh, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, but let the lowly brother. So it's not a different conversation. He's still talking about the same thing. And he says let. It's interesting that in English it sounds pretty mild, but actually in Greek it's a command. It's a strong command. This is what you're supposed to do. This is not a suggestion. This is James. He is giving an example, but he is making a comment about what it looks like to live according to the wisdom of God and not according to the wisdom of the world. But let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Lowly, poor. In the book of James, that's what he means, poor. So let the, let the lowly or the poor brother boast in his exaltation. Well, how does someone who is poor and the lowest person on the totem pole in society, how do they boast in their exaltation? Well, they'll only have one type of exaltation, and that's what they have in Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And the rich brother, it's the inference, and the rich brother in his humiliation... Why? Because the lowly brother has Christ, and that's all that matters. And the rich brother has Christ, and that's all that matters. Why? Look what he says. Because, the, uh, like, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What is he saying here? He's telling us, don't look at things, and he just uses money as an example, but don't look at money or wealth or finance the way that the world tells you to look at it. Because he's talking about those who are poor. That would be a trial. That would be a difficulty. That would be a hardship. And what he's saying is, when you're in the midst of that hardship of being poor, then what you need to do is instead rejoice in the fact that you have Christ Don't look at your circumstances on this earth. Look to the Lord and rejoice in that circumstance. That's what it looks like to live according to the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of this world. But notice it's very interesting. We don't have time to talk about it for too long, but he actually considers being rich a trial. (laughs) That's the context of the passage. He considers being wealthy a trial. Why? Because you're going to spend your entire life making certain that Christ comes first and not your bank account. 
You're going, to make cert- you're going to have to fight to make certain that God remains God and money does not become your God. So what do you need to do? You need to exalt in your humiliation. What does that mean? That because when you come before the Lord, the old phrase is that the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. When you come to the Lord, you are no different than that brother who has nothing physically. He'll talk about that later in a different sense. But why should you do? Well, that's not the way the world tells us to do it. The world tells us if you're poor, you should fight to get out of that. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't try to advance yourself, but what I'm saying is the world says if you're poor, that's broken. That's wrong. You need to, you've been mistreated. You have been beaten down, and what you need is to be brought out of that. And what he says is, regardless of the circumstance, if you're poor and you're a believer, you need to learn how to rejoice in the fact that you have been exalted in Jesus Christ. And if you are wealthy, the world says, man, you got it made. And he says, no, 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 no. You've been humiliated before the cross of Christ because you're a sinner in need of grace. And both of you need to worship God because of Christ. Why? Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive The crown of life. Why do we need to remain steadfast under trial? Not not like a wave being tossed to and fro about the wind. uh, Not being double-minded in all of our ways. Why do we need to rejoice, to count it pure joy when we encounter various trials of different kinds? Knowing that the trying... Why? Because we know that the trying of our faith produces steadfastness. And then what does he say in verse 12? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test of life, or test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So in the midst of trial, the follower of Christ is to be singularly focused on him. It's just like the psalmist that we looked last week at the book of Habakkuk. What's the answer to trial and difficulty, suffering and hardship? It's not to get out of it because like I said, you're either getting out of it, in it, or going into it. That's pretty much it. So it's not getting out of it because one after another after another, you live in a broken and fallen world. So then the answer to trial and difficulty is not fight my way to get out of it. Let the Lord deliver you the answer to how you deal with trial and difficulty and remain steadfast and able to hold. That's what the word means, able to withstand or withhold. So how do you remain that way? You look to God and you ask Him for wisdom and He will give you the right perspective on how to view it. And instead of viewing your trial as just something that you're being mistreated and you're being, you're being torn down, instead you look at it and you count it joy because that trying of your faith will produce steadfastness. And if you say, remain steadfast, at the end, what do you get? You get the crown of life. That's eternal life, by the way. You get the crown of life. which God has promised to those who love Him. The point for us this morning is that regardless of our situation, regardless of the circumstance you're either in, coming out of, or going into, he here uses the explanation or the the illustration of having much or having little. 
But he could just as easily have talked about other trials. James is making it clear from the outset of this letter that we are to live our lives with the conscious understanding that God desires for us to look to Him in the midst of hardship. And not just to look to Him to complain, but look to Him as the only source of the wisdom we need to make it through. The only source. And see, the truth is, and this is what I think is so important, and I think we can't get away from it in the New Testament or in the Old Testament, in all of Scripture, is that suffering is no respecter of persons. You realize that faithful, devout believers deal with horrific illnesses and tragedy and death. And do you realize that the most staunch and ingrained atheists in the world deal with illness and tragedy and death? It is no respecter of persons. But the ability to thrive in trial is wisdom. And that wisdom only comes from God. Suffering and trial have a purpose. That purpose for believers is that it causes believers to mature in our faith and to become more like Jesus Christ. But hear me this morning. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, apart from faith in Christ, tragedy, pain, hardship, and suffering have no purpose in your life. They have no purpose. It's senseless. It just hurts. And there's no escaping it. There's no removing yourself from it. It's just painful. So what do you do then? Well, you you run to the one who suffered on your behalf. You run to the one who felt the deepest pain in existence on your behalf. Because in Jesus Christ, that is the only way that trial and suffering and difficulty make sense. It is the only way that your suffering and your trial and your tragedy actually produce something other than bitterness, anger, and pain. So what do you do? You run to Jesus. Run to Him. Because you're going to hurt anyway. But your pain is senseless without Christ. And he, you run to Him. Hear me. I'm not saying if you run to Jesus, He'll remove your suffering. I'm saying if you run to Jesus, He'll make your suffering make sense. You run to Jesus, He'll give you the right perspective. You'll be able to see it as joy. You run to Jesus, He'll give you wisdom because He does. He's the only source. And if you run to Jesus and keep your focus on Him, you will receive the crown of life. So run to Him. He died for you. You can give your life to Him this morning. And believer, the one thing, as I said, the one thing we know to be true is that suffering and difficulty are common. They're common among all of us. 
And we will not escape them. But the testing of our faith will produce steadfastness. And steadfastness will produce maturity. You say, well, I just don't know how to do it. Go to him and ask for wisdom. Go to him and say, Lord, I'm just in pain. God, this hurts. Lord, I don't know what to do. And God, I mean, I know you're the Lord and I know you're in charge and I know you're able and I know you're capable and I know you're all powerful and I I know you're all knowing. Lord, I know all those things, but right now I'm struggling to take those things I know and put them into action. God, can you give me the ability to do that? God, please. And you know what it says here? His child goes to him and asks for wisdom. And you don't do it doubting. You do it ready to follow exactly what he tells you. He says he'll give you wisdom. And he'll give it to you generously. And he won't look down on you like an angry, ancient God. He'll look down on you as a loving father. See... All of these things, these sufferings, these difficulties, they have a purpose, they have a goal. Believer, what are you going through this morning? What are you struggling with this morning? What do you see coming on the horizon that you say, I I don't know how to deal with this. I don't know how to move forward with this. We're going to have a time of invitation. If you're not a believer, you want to trust Christ, by all means, come forward. I'd love to talk with you about how you can have... Christ in your life and how this life can make sense and only make sense in him. But if you're a believer this morning, whether it's right there in your seat, wherever you want to do it, but you want to grab somebody you know that'll pray with you, but you, maybe you just need to go to the Lord and say, God, I don't know how to deal with this circumstance. Can you give me the wisdom? And when you give me the wisdom, I'll follow it. I'll trust you. I'll believe. And then ask him to change your perspective. Ask him to change your perspective and to look at this situation and say, Lord, I know this hurts right now, but God, can you give me the perspective to see it as something that I can rejoice in? As something that I can count as pure joy, and the Lord will do that. He promises he will, and then you can thank the Lord. And then you can do like so many before. Everyone goes through difficulty, but the believer should be the kind of person that when the world looks at you and knows what you're going through, they should look at you and say, how on earth are you able to view this situation like this? And your answer can be, it has nothing to do with earth. It has everything to do with him.